We turn now in God's Word to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. For whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. The apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done, and he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. And the day began to wear away. The twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled And twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and asked him, saying, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. And I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. This morning we consider the sending out of the twelve disciples here in this chapter. Verse 1 says, as I 
read, then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority. Now, in one sense, this is a continuation of precisely what we saw in the previous chapter, Luke chapter 8. You know that Luke chapter 8, the latter part of it, was all about this amazing demonstration of Jesus' unlimited power and authority over everything, over illness, over the demons, over uh, the elements themselves, and over life and death. And this is a continuation. It's a further demonstration of Jesus' unlimited power. He had so much of this power and authority that he could give it to his disciples, whom we know were just ordinary men, much like ourselves. You know, that's the mark of the truly great, that not only are they able to do great things themselves, but they're able to impart this to others, that they are able then to carry on this work on their behalf. Well, Jesus was truly great. He was the greatest, of course, of all time. And so he also demonstrated his power in imparting it to his disciples. But beyond that, in the greater scheme of things, in the the whole book of Luke, and beyond that, this is a major step forward. For the first time, we're moving from just looking at Jesus in isolation himself and again, in chapter 8, speaking particularly of his great power and authority, to Jesus and empowering his disciples to carry out that work he's giving. And this is just where Luke is heading. You know, that under the power of the Holy Spirit, he wrote these two books, both Luke and Acts. And here we are in Luke chapter 9, but soon enough, we're leading on to the end of Luke. And that after Jesus rose from the grave in Luke twenty four forty six. Then he said to them, This, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That's the promise and that is the command. The promise is that they're going to be given power from on high. They're going to be given the power of the Holy Spirit. And the command is that they go and preach. And then the whole book of Acts, that's what it's about. It's about the fulfillment of those things. That they actually do that. that these weak men are given power. And these weak men are able indeed to preach the kingdom And great things happen to the glory of God because of it. And that, brothers and sisters, moves us on to where we are this very day. All this, this beginning, this little beginning in Luke 9, it is a foretaste of the church age in which we now live. Jesus is not physically here. He's not physically present. He most certainly is present, but he's not physically here. He does not speak to us directly. He does not speak to anyone at this time directly. Yet his word, this message of the kingdom, is being preached all over the world. Think about it even this very day. What's going on this very day? Can we even imagine how many people are hearing the word of God all over the world today? And you see this situation of how it grows. First you have Jesus in the beginning part of Luke. He's just alone. He's the only one preaching that kingdom. Then he sends out the twelve, and now they're preaching the kingdom. There's a multiplication of that. In the very next chapter, he sends out the 70. It's an even greater multiplication of that effort. And they are then in 70 different, well, they're sent out two by two, but 35 different places. They are then preaching that same kingdom. And now today, 
Think about on this very day and all the time zones of the world, how many preachers there are. We, those of us who were at the presbytery yesterday, saw some of them. Well, they're not just, they're not, they haven't slept in, they're not lying in today, they're preaching today. And there are many, many more like that in this country, and many more like that in, in Scotland and Northern Ireland, and many more like that in the continent of Europe, and much, much more than that in all the nations and the continents of this world, they are all preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom. And here's where it begins. In this chapter, as the disciples are first sent out. Now, there are certain aspects of this that we read that do not apply exactly to us today. And particularly of the power to heal in miraculous ways. But there are, there's more than enough here in this chapter to teach us very important lessons and principles about the nature of what it is that we're called to do as a church and there's the resources that God has put at our disposal in order to do it. So the title of this sermon is, Jesus Gave Them Power and Authority. And there are these five points. He gave them power and authority over what? Over demons. Secondly, to preach. Thirdly, to heal. Fourthly, to use his resources. And fifth, to warn. He gave him power and authority over demons to preach, to heal, to use his resources, and to warn people. So first, he gave him power over demons. And he called his twelve disciples, this is verse 1, of course, twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Power over demons. Authority over demons. Now, one sense, of course, is particularly to the situation of exorcism, to cast out demons, those who are demon-possessed. And that time that Christ was on earth seemed to particularly stir up uh, demonic oppression. It seemed to be a time in which Satan was throwing all of his resources and the demons were gathered together. And there are so many cases of, of uh, possession and so many times in which Jesus was called upon and his disciples to cast out those demons. But of course, that doesn't mean that it came to an end. We have no hint in scripture that that was going to come to an end. And even today, and particularly in places where the light of the gospel is very dim and absent, we know there are cases of demonic possession of people. But in the much larger sense, to give power over demons, and incidentally, not just says power over demons, power over all demons, that most certainly includes power over Satan himself, the chief demon, the leader of the demons. Because how is all this preaching going to accomplish anything? Well, they're in the grasp of Satan. You know, that's what the, the Word of God says, right? 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We know that they are of their father, the devil. They are under, sadly, his power. They are slaves. They are captives. They are prisoners of Satan. He speaks his lies. He casts his spell, as it were, over the whole world. And there they are, his slaves. And they listen to his lies. And they turn away from God's truth. And they, they receive his leadership, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And they reject Christ and his word. How then is preaching going to change that? 
It's really important for us to understand that because sometimes we, we mistake it and think, well, you know, if we just have a better understanding of psychology, if we just have a better understanding of sociology, if we just come up with a better sales pitch, then maybe we can reach people if we just make ourselves more attractive in various ways. But if you understand what 1 John 5.19 says, the world lies under this, the sway of the wicked one, then we understand it takes power and authority over demons to do anything about that. This, this preaching mission is going to be a worthless mission, an empty and vain mission, apart from some power over the demons, and particularly of Satan, who has power over all the unregenerate people in this world. So he's going to have to do what it says in Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And when, therefore, he sends out his disciples to preach that kingdom, he is sending them with the power uh, as liberators. Yet the power of the demons in order that they might be set free from oppression of every form. And that's why we must have power. You know, um, soon enough we'll come to Luke Chapter 11, verse 20, I'm always uh, at a a loss sometimes of how much to borrow from future chapters because I don't want to take away from them before the time. But, you know, Jesus said this, If I cast out demons with a finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is his illustration. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. And what is he talking about? Who's the strong man? The strong man is Satan. He's guarding his own palace, his own kingdom of the world, and his goods are at peace. But when a stronger man than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. What is he saying? He's saying these people are wondering how it is that he's casting out demons. He's wondering by what power and what authority Jesus is enabled to cast out these demons. He's saying, I do it by the finger of God. The kingdom of God has come upon you because I am the stronger man. I'm the one. Look, Satan, let's not deceive ourselves. Satan is a strong man. But Jesus Christ is stronger. And he comes and he takes his stuff. And he beats them up. And he releases those who were were captive to him. It's as simple as that. And if Christ's church, if Christ is going to accomplish this great work, he's going to have to give his disciples power over demons. He's going to have to invest his preachers with that kind of power to release them from the captivity that they're in. Now, of course, that kind of power given to mankind is amazing. And we'll see that people are indeed amazed that such power is given. I think Herod, by the way, we see this instance of Herod the Tetrarch being amazed it wasn't actually funny enough. We, we have it in this text. It wasn't after his power over the elements, specifically. It wasn't after his power over disease, specifically. It wasn't after his power um, even over life and death to bring back someone to life. It was after the news that he was given this power to his disciples and they were doing these kind of things and casting out demons and preaching the kingdom and healing the sick in his name. And no doubt he was amazed that such power was given. Um, But so it was in God's great plan. So he gives power over the demons. Secondly, he gives power to preach. Again, he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority. And verse 2, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. 
Now, once again, I think we see that the clear priority is placed on preaching. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and at every point, I think the authors under the Holy Spirit of the gospel, those who wrote the gospel under the the inspiration of, of God, they are at pains, I think, to establish and make clear the priority of the preaching of the word. There were other things going on, important things. But the priority is always on the preaching, and that is the mission. If you were to sum up what their mission was in a single word, it is to pre- or a single phrase, it is to preach the kingdom of God. That's what they're sent out to do. And they're also doing some other things that go along with that. But the nature, the character of what they're doing is preaching. And he gives them power and authority to do that. And believe me, it takes both of those things, both power and authority, Sometimes we might forget this, but preaching without authority would be a grave sin. You don't just start representing a king or earthly authority, a prime minister, a president without his express permission and warrant to do so. Just imagine someone going to some foreign country and dressing up as a diplomat and pretending to represent someone else and and transacting business and making treaties and deals and so forth without the authority to do that. You certainly do not start representing the whole God of the universe, speaking on his behalf, offering terms and conditions, making deals with people. In in essence, that's what we certainly are doing. When I preach this gospel and I say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, that's what I'm doing. I'm offering you terms. I'm making a deal on on the Lord's behalf. And, And I have that authority under the word of God, under the Holy Spirit. I have that authority. If you receive it, if you say, yes, I like those kind of terms, and you receive them, you're saved. The transaction works. And it's only because, of course, I have that authority under God to do that. I better have that authority. Not only had I better, and all preachers have that authority, we need the power to go along with it because preaching is something that requires power. You know, lecturing, giving a lecture, that requires knowledge. It might require decent writing skills, organization, and so forth. But preaching requires power. It, it does not happen, you see, on, on mere preparation. It does not happen on mere eloquence and so forth. Over and over again in God's word, and particularly in Acts, we see that the disciples, the apostles, were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they preached their amazing sermon. And then things happen, and then the 5,000 are saved and all the rest of it. It happens because of the power that they're given. And if God removes his hand of power, then nothing happens at all. It requires power. Power to be bold. You know, they're always, Paul is always asking for boldness, the courage to say what needs to be said. Because we all, we're all just ordinary men. That's the great point of this chapter. These very, very ordinary men are given this authority and power to go out and to preach the kingdom. But we need courage because we all struggle with the fear of man rather than God and we don't want to say what. You know what happens? You know what would happen ordinarily in the normal course of events if things were just left to themselves, churches and preachers were just left to themselves, do you know what would happen? I would never get around to saying uncomfortable things. I would never get around to saying difficult things at all because I wouldn't want to offend you. I would have the fear of man rather than the fear of God. Paul prays for boldness. 
He needs the power to do it. We're asking, and it's something that you ask God for. He says, I want you to pray to God that he gives me boldness because only God can give me. I don't want you to, to and not that he's, he's saying don't encourage me in that way, but he's not saying, look, people, please come, come tell me and encourage me to be bold. He's saying, no, I want you to pray to God that I would be bold because only God can give me that kind of power. And then, of course, the outcome is entirely over. So, it's, yes, it's the boldness to say what needs to be said and the way it is said with power. But the outcome, there's, it's not just a rousing, emotionally laden sermon that's going to do it. Those are empty. Uh, the, the fruit does not remain from those kind of things. If the power of the Holy Spirit is not at work in the hearer's heart, then nothing of any lasting fruit happens at all. There must be that kind of power. And maybe you remember from the series in Revelation, that wonderful promise in Revelation 11.3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. He's going to give power to his witnesses to preach for as long as he desires his word to be known until the end comes. Well, we'll speak perhaps later on with some more about this preaching the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom that he's talking about. But he gives power and authority over demons. He gives power and authority to preach. And thirdly, he gives power and authority to heal. He gave them power and authority to cure diseases. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, we have to ask, what is the purpose of miraculous signs? Of course, there was a need. Of course, Jesus had compassion on the multitudes, and he healed them. He fed them on other occasions, as we're going to see. He fed them out of compassion for the multitude. There's certainly an element there. But what is the larger purpose of, of miracles, of miraculous signs? Well, primarily, it's to establish them as speaking the truth from God, as being true prophets, as being authorized to speak on God's behalf. That's what the point of, for instance, uh, Exodus. You know, in Exodus 3, the Lord, the angel of the Lord appears to him in the burning bush that speaks to Moses and gives him this great mission to go redeem his people from the land that has held them captive. Get that? Understand? The land Pharaoh has, has got them as his slaves. They're hidden in this land of darkness and kept as slaves. And Moses is sent to go take them out of this land and bring them into the promised land. It's all a picture of what spiritually happens today, Right? of redeeming people from the power of Satan and bringing them in to the heavenly kingdom. And what he says is, in, in, in chapter 4 is, he begins to ask some questions, and he says, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you, because that's important. Because he's got to be known to actually represent God. He's got to be speaking on God's behalf in order for anyone to listen. Pharaoh or the people themselves. And we know this is actually what happened. They didn't believe. They didn't want to listen. They had to be proven by other means. And what are the means? Well, the Lord then gives him a list of miracles that are going to happen. What's in your hand? A rod. Becomes a a snake. A dangerous one, apparently, because Moses runs away from it. And, you know, and so forth and so on. The miracles become greater and greater and greater and greater until not even Pharaoh, in all of his sin and rebellion, can possibly deny that this is the finger of God. His magicians have to say, this is the finger of God. Jesus, or, uh, Moses was given, you see, the authority to speak. 
He was a true prophet of God, and all these miracles validated him. Well, likewise, these apostles on the found, were going to be the foundation of God's church. We read their words today, and they needed to be validated by these many, many miracles that were done by their hand. And that's then the purpose of making sure that they weren't just speaking, but that everyone would know that they spoke with the authority of God because they did these miracles. Well, he gave them his power and authority to, to heal and also, then, fourthly, to use resources. It says in verse 3, And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staves, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. He goes, you know, in here he kind of enumerates some things. This list, don't take anything, and specifically not staves. That's a common piece of travel equipment, Right? nor bag for money, nor bread, provision, nor money itself, and do not have two tunics. Don't pack with provision, even in terms of clothes. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And, and the message that you might get is that Jesus is, is not concerned about material provision. But I want you to keep in mind that these are the instructions that he gives for them, for their perspective, What he's saying to them is, you don't be overly concerned about these things. And the implication is because I will take care of it. He is concerned, supremely concerned for all the resources that are necessary in order for his work to take place. But he's saying, I'm going to take care of them. You know, I'll give you an example of, of, you know, all this is predicated. This packing very, very light as they are packing very light, packing at all could be used basically go as you are, is predicated on Jesus giving them the authority to make use of his resources. That's the deal. He's giving them power and authority, and he says, look, I have all power and authority, and I, can use, I have all the stuff that I need, and I'm going to let you have that stuff too. It says in Luke 19.30, you know, here's this, this situation. In order to fulfill the prophecy of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, meek, um, and, and humble on a, a donkey. It says, Go into the village opposite you. Where you enter, you will find a colt tied, which no one has ever sat on. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Why are you stealing this colt? You shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. And you know that's exactly what happened. He basically said, Look, I'm going to give you some authority. I, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. All the colts in the world are mine. I get to do with them what I want, and I am going to give you some of my authority in order to carry out what is necessary on my behalf. Go and take the colt. The Lord has need of it. Now, that is certainly not a, a, a license for us to go and take what we need. The point is, the principle is, we don't need to worry about the resources to do what God has called us to do. When he calls us to do something, he also gives us access to the resources in order to carry out. And they, those things are not up front. They're not front-loaded to us. He does not count them out, you know, 100,000 pounds worth of resources before they go on their journey. He says, go on your journey, and you're going to be well provided for. That's, that's the end of the story. And he makes sure that it happens. Now, some further rationale, by the way, is explained in the next chapter where the, the 70 are sent out in very, very similar circumstances. Um, 
says in Luke 10, 4, Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And so a little bit further rationale and some specifics. I want us to understand the basic principle that he's giving us the authority when we're on his, his errand, whatever that might be, it always comes with uh, the authority to use of God's infinite resources. He will provide for us in doing these things. But also, more specifically, it is an honor and a benefit to have a messenger of God stay in your house. That's the point here. You and your family get to hear more directly and more constantly than anyone else in that village, anyone else in that town, the word of God, and the laborer is therefore worthy of his wages. The laborer who's doing this work is worthy of his wages in a general sense and in more particularly for those who most directly benefit from it. It is to their benefit to pay the way of this man preaching the word of God because they will certainly benefit eternally from it. Now, again, keep in mind the specifics were to change. We're we're taking principles from the Word of God at this point rather than absolute specifics. Again, we, we don't have license to go to any cult. We don't have, in fact, we don't have the specific idea of not packing at all because Luke 22, 35 says to this, he says, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, referring back to the sending of the Um, the 12 and then the 70 in Luke 9 and 10, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. There we are. There's a validation. He said, I I sent you out without packing anything. Did you lack anything? Nope. Okay, good. Learn the lesson then. I can send you with absolutely nothing and provide for you entirely and you will not lack for a single thing. Once you've got that clear in your mind, then I'll give you a new instruction. And he said to them, but now he who has a, a, a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So all the things that you need, yes, this time they're going to pack. The idea is be clear in your mind that God is able to provide for you. That's the idea. So he gives him authority. That authority includes access to all of his infinite resources. And fifthly, to warn people. Verse 5, whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Well, this is a sober then conclusion to his instruction here that includes what to do if they don't receive him. Because that's a question, isn't it, in everyone's mind. That's certainly the question in my mind, a question every time, I think, that we are called upon or given an opportunity to share our faith, to evangelize, the question comes, what if they reject this? And Jesus is giving us some principles of what to do if that happens, because it's going to happen. There's no question. Not everyone is going to receive this. The word of God is very clear. What do we do? Well, Luke chapter 10 gives us some more specifics. Again, what we have in seed form in chapter 9 is explained in greater length and detail in chapter 10. And he says uh, this. Um, 
And they don't, if they don't receive you, go out into the streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And he goes on to say, But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which are done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. You see how this goes? All right, so just to, to step through, the shaking off the dust is a public act of dissociation. We are dissociating from this place. People, you know, who go to nice places and want to be associated with them, what do they get? A souvenir, right? Um, even in the Old Testament, Naaman, you remember the Syrian general who was, was healed. Uh, he wanted to take back with him two mule loads of earth from Israel in Second Kings 5.17, the very opposite of shaking off the dust. He wants to bring the dust with him. Um, but shaking off the dust means that we want nothing to do with that city. And worse than that, worse than that, we know that God is about to destroy that city. And we dare not let the dust of it remain on us lest it be destroyed along with it. That's the idea. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because God takes the reception of his word very seriously. You know, this, this extreme measure, as we think of it, is, it seems rather extreme. It wouldn't make sense unless God took the reception of his word very seriously. But he does. He really, really cares about that. His word is an extension of himself. And when he speaks it to people, it matters. It is not, he never speaks it in vain. It is a great, mighty privilege to ever hear the word of God. And he holds you absolutely accountable for hearing it and receiving it in the way that it ought to be. And you dare not be casual in your reception of it. The word of God, this exceedingly close relationship between how people receive the word of God and how they receive God himself. And and along with that, a parallel uh, situation is the way people receive us, the way people receive the, the people of God, the way he receives messengers of God, that's also very much the way that God takes it as they receiving himself. Now, the word of God is not trivial. It, it is not to be trifled with. It brings life and it also brings death. It brings salvation and it brings destruction. And we see then that it is not something to be trifled with. If, if a people, if a, if a person or a people receive it, it is to their everlasting salvation. But if they reject it, it might well be to their everlasting destruction and condemnation. Now, incidentally, I would say it's, this is a reminder that there is a communal aspect to God's dealing with man. Um, this is not the social gospel. Uh, it is not the idea that the church is trying to make the world better, the culture better directly, and that people who are brought up in better cultures just because it has been Christianized or transformed or something like that, that they're going to be saved. That's not, not it. It's far more direct than that. It is far more direct. It is that communities and places that welcome the word of God put themselves and their families under the only means of salvation. Good. But communities that reject the word of God, remove themselves from their only means of salvation, they and their family and neighbors and so forth, 
and that word is removed from them, God does it, does it as we said. There's a downward spiral. You don't want my word? I'll just remove it from you. And they also, to add to it, make their community liable to, to destruction without remedy. We know that Jesus, of course, is not speaking of something happening in advance of the, of the judgment. He speaks of these communities. It's going to be bad for them in the day of judgment. And they've made themselves liable for that destruction. God said, may just say to a community, I withdraw my word and I'll never return. I'll never again send my disciples to be ridiculed. I'll never again send my messengers to be rejected and to be ignored by people in this place. And they will all go to hell as everyone deserves, apart from the saving work of Christ through the word of God being received in faith. Well, that is some power and authority, isn't it, that he has given to his people, an incredible amount of power and authority. And the question is, what are we going to do with that? Well, I'd say, number one, we ought to glorify God for it. Matthew 9, 6 says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he rose and departed from his house. Now, here's the point I'm trying to make here. What is the response? Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Glorified God. that he gave. Now, they're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, the God-man. How much more than, than we see these things, this power over demons, this power to declare the word of God on behalf of him, to bring people to life, even the power then to, to warn of their impending destruction if they reject it, this power of, of all resources given, this authority to use it. What do we do? We glorify God. I mean, I can't believe that this kind of authority has been given to, to men either. It seems, it doesn't almost, it quite doesn't seem quite right that he's given the keys of the kingdom to mere men. But he has. And we ought to glorify God in it. That's number one. Number two, we ought to unleash this power and authority. It's there, it's been given to mere men, it's been given to the church, and we ought to unleash it. We ought to let it do its, its work for all that, that it's worth. You know, modern approaches, what, what I would say about this more specifically, modern ideas about preaching and the word of God, we just, we have to reject, okay? If, we're, if we want to unleash this word, we just have to turn our back on these, these fashionable ways of dealing with the word of God. Um, I would say there's aspects of apologetics that are wrong. Two different kinds of apologetic approaches, I would say we don't want to go down that road. One, this kind of enlightenment, rational apologetics in which we follow the rules that are created by atheists as to what is uh, rational and what isn't. And which they say in their smugness, as gatekeepers for things, they say, we have rules of what we listen to and what we don't. And if your message obeys our rules, if it conforms to our rules for what is rational, we might listen to it. And then Christianity, apologists for Christianity, oh, okay, whatever you say, Christianity, I think it does follow your rules, and, and, and I can prove it. And we go on to cravingly find some way to adhere, make this message uh, adhere to their situation. Little do we know that it's been so extracted, it's been so uh, 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 taken away from its power that it's nothing left. It's just some insipid moralism. 
that people can take or leave. That is not the way God deals with men. That is not the way he comes. That is not the way his authorized messengers speak his message. And I would say also apologetic. There is a right apologetic, so I don't mean to deny that. But apologetic also in the sense of what we would call seeker-sensitive approaches. And the idea, again, that we need to, that the thing that we most desire is not to offend. We need to make the church as much like the world as we possibly can so that people coming in feel perfectly comfortable and at home, even if they're unregenerate. But according to this, who, who is it that we're, we're worried about offending here? According to the word of God, it's not me, the preacher, that needs to be careful not to offend you, the hearer of the word of God. It is you, the hearer of the word of God, that need to be very careful that you do not offend God in your rejection of it. Doesn't at the end of it say, woe to you, preacher. You declared the whole counsel of God without cutting any of it away. And you offended those poor people that walked into your church. He says, woe to you who heard. Woe to you who heard and did not receive it in faith. Those who rejected, woe to you, it's going to be bad. And I dare not take, you know, that's the warning that applies to me. You dare not take away or add to the word of God. Revelation twenty two eighteen. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. That's the sensitivity I have as a preacher. I dare not add and I dare not take away. And the sensitivity that you have as a hearer is that you dare not reject this word. God will hold you accountable. And we have to reject these things. Now we want to be careful about saying too much in this We don't go out of our way to offend people. That's not our job. The word of God does it itself. You see, because it is something, it is a message that is hateful to unregenerate man to say that you can't do it on your own. You can't save yourself. All your righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. You have nothing with which to earn your merit at all. And you must repent of your sin and you must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the only way of salvation that is offensive to every last unregenerate person that has ever heard that message all the way in the past. The first time Jesus ever said it, the first time it was mentioned a long time before that in the Old Testament. And it will be until he returns. There's nothing that's going to change that. There's his own offense. We ourselves, of course, try to be loving. Our, our church does not seek to be offensive. It seeks to, be, to show the love of God for people. But we cannot trim the word of God in our love for people. That is the worst thing we could possibly do for them. You know, Jesus... Uh, I'll just close this particular application with the words of Paul in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And what we need to do is to, in the words of someone else, let the lion out of the cage. This word of God is the power of God 
to salvation for everyone who believes. My third application is that we ought to appreciate it. If God has really given such power and authority to, to us, we ought to appreciate it. Not, not in a sense of pride, not in a sense of self-sufficiency, but for a right appreciation of the power that God has given to us. And that's all summed up in 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. That's great. Those things go together. It's not fear. Fear can't be loving. Okay? Those who are fearful don't know how to do it. They don't know how to be generous. They don't know how to give. They don't know how to serve. But rather, we have a spirit both of power and of love, and those things work perfectly together. We are utterly secure in what God has made us. We are utterly secure in the authority and the power that God has given us to do what he's called us to. And from that, then, we were able to love people and speak to the truth to them in love. No spirit of fear there. We have to have the recognition that Jesus is opening up the doors to all of his infinite resources. Remind us again of Matthew 6. This is about seek first the kingdom of God. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the, to the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O little, o you of little faith? Therefore... Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't forget the lessons that the disciples learned themselves. Just for a little experiment, disciples, I'm going to send you out just as you are. Don't, don't even go and get a, a, a stick. No money bag? We know that they actually carried a money bag, but apparently they weren't allowed to take it with them. Nothing. You just go. And I'll demonstrate for you once and for all that I'm able to provide for all of your needs, wherever it is that I may send you, whatever work it is that I give to you. Seek first the kingdom of God, all these other things will be added to you. Does that make sense of your priorities? Sense of what we're supposed to be doing in this life? Our priorities for our, our, our children? The things that we aspire to and all the rest of it? It's not about the details, the logistic details, because Jesus says, I will take care of those things. Now again, I understand, yes, when we go on a trip, we have to pack. Sometimes. But what I'm saying is we don't worry about them. That's not our fixation. That's not where our mind spends its time. We think about seeking first the kingdom of God. That's the point. Fourthly and finally, I think it would be wrong not to hear the gospel of the kingdom, which I mentioned. What is this gospel of the kingdom which they were sent to preach? Well, it was explained for us in Mark 1.14. After, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And saying, and he's not saying something else, this is a specification. What is the content of the kingdom of God? It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word for you. Time is at hand. Jesus is risen. And that means that he will return. That was the point, by the way, of of. The Paul's sermon at Mars Hill. He says, the Lord has appointed a day in which he is going to judge the living and the dead. 
And he has demonstrated that by, bring, by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what's going to happen. That's the next thing that's going to happen. He's going to return to judge the living and the dead. The time is at hand. It's there. And, and we're reminded of the example of the situation of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, and, and Lot, you know what he does? He tells the gospel. He gives the warning that's implicit. And he tells the gospel, look, God is about to destroy this place. We need to get out of here. And, and that's our situation right now in this world. God is going to destroy this place. This is the city of destruction. The time is at hand. And I'm telling you, I'm pleading with you one more time. Repent and believe. Repent from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. A great, most gracious, most powerful Heavenly Father. Lord, what can we say to these things? Lord, when we think of the world as a whole rejecting your word and your servants as they rejected Christ himself and put him to death, Lord, we cannot even imagine that the world has continued on until this day. So richly deserving is it of judgment. But Lord, we ourselves so worthy of your judgment, so eligible for it in ourselves. We are sinners. And Lord, even as Christians, given this word, even though we should know better, even though we have the Holy Spirit, we sin. Lord, great is your mercy. And we are thankful that today remains a day of salvation. Lord God, forgive us for taking away from your word, for having a wrong approach to it. Lord, we pray that our concern indeed would be to preach it, to speak it, to obey it in utter faithfulness, leaving all the consequences to you. We know, Lord God, that it is no trivial thing. And how we pray, Lord, that great good would come as we think indeed of all those men preaching the word of God this Lord's day, that indeed you would visit us with great power, that your spirit would bring it home to our hearts and bring many people to saving faith, to all to your glory, Lord. How we pray indeed that you'd help us not to live in anxiety, but in great power and love as you open up all of your resources and given us the authority to do the things that we are called to do. We pray you'd help us indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We turn now to another of the means of grace from the Word of God. Now to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Let me explain the qualifications for coming to the Lord's table. That it is indeed for believers. That the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was instituted by our Lord before he was betrayed and crucified. And he also warns us, the Bible warns us to examine ourselves before coming to the table. That only believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should take this sacrament and then only those who are not in any open and defiant sin. And so, therefore, the elders seek, on the one hand, to guard the table from those who may not be able to rightly discern the Lord's body, and on the other are concerned to welcome believers, that they would not be excluded from the Lord's own table. And connected to that, it is for church members, because communion is a sign of belonging to the visible church. 
and is for communicant members either of this church or some other faithful evangelical church. So to be clear, if you're able to speak of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you do belong to an evangelical church, please come to the table. And likewise, there are some believers who for the moment are in some exceptional circumstance regarding their membership, but have received permission from the elders and you also are welcome to this table. More specifically, uh, the larger catechism, the Westminster larger catechism, asks the question, what is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper at the time of administration? And the answer, it is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance, diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions heedfully discern the Lord's body and affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace renewing of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. Here now the words of institution as spoken by our Lord and given to the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Let us give thanks. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed that you provide for all of our needs. And certainly, Lord, you give us food and drink. But Lord, on this occasion, as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we, we set aside... Uh, this cup and this bread from its ordinary use for use in the Lord's Supper. Indeed, Lord, we pray that you'd enable us to receive it in all that it signifies and all that it seals to us in thanksgiving and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.